Now, many Christians believe forgiveness is instant. God forgives us quickly, and so we do the same. So when someone tells us, I'm sorry, it's our Christian duty to forgive them on the spot, move on, and put the whole thing behind us. Seems straightforward, doesn't it? Certainly in principle. Let me give you some examples. Your spouse arrives home from work having forgotten to stop by the supermarket as promised. Instant forgiveness? Yes, why are the blokes smiling here? I'm not quite sure why. What about a colleague forgetting to give you the heads up about an important meeting and you dropped in it? Instant forgiveness on the spot? Yeah, but what about situations a bit more serious where selfishness or betrayal or nastiness is much greater? Like when someone you trusted and opened up to gossips to all and sundry. Instant forgiveness? What about a a business partner who not only steals from the business but rips off your clients and then skips the country? If he gives you a call from the beach in Bali and says, look, I'm sorry, instant forgiveness? What about a husband and churchgoer who after 20 years is unfaithful in marriage? Surely forgiving instant in these situations is good. It shows you're a good Christian, a better Christian. shows you're mature, even heroic in your faith. Well, today we're going to address questions around forgiveness, healthy forgiveness, and whether it's instant or not. And as we come to Joseph's story, we're at the stage where he generously and against all odds forgives his brothers. Not just everyday forgiving, but he forgave in a way that was beautiful, but really extreme. So looking at Joseph's story today, we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at what forgiveness looks like, how we forgive, and our motivation to forgive. Three things. We'll start in Joseph's story, and then we'll go to the parable of Jesus. What forgiveness looks like, how we forgive, and the motivation to forgive. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word and deal with quite a sensitive subject, we pray that you will soften our hard hearts, open our deaf ears. May we encounter Christ afresh in your living word. Through Jesus' name, amen. So briefly to recap, uh, betrayed by his brothers, Joseph spent 17 years a slave and in prison until he interprets the two dreams of the Pharaoh. Now, the two dreams talk of seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And Pharaoh recognises God's hand on Joseph and appoints him second in the land and commissions him to prepare for the famine. It's now the second year that the crops have failed and Egypt is saved, but not so Joseph's family. Back in Canaan, they're starving. So the brothers travel to Egypt, not once but twice, to purchase food. And both times they don't recognise Joseph. So Joseph devises a test to see if they've changed. And they have. God's been working on the brothers all these years just as much as God has been working on Joseph. And he senses that the brothers' repentance is genuine and godly. And they have this wonderful 
celebration, this wonderful reunion, reconciliation that's described in Genesis chapter 45, verse 3. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. And when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. And what we have here is a beautiful example of what forgiveness looks like. Remember that before the brothers had travelled to Egypt, the last time that Joseph had seen them, he had been pleading for his life. Joseph would never forget the sounds of the chains rattling, the bite of the whip, the smell of fear, that overwhelming sense of abandonment. Years a slave, then falsely accused and thrown into jail with no trial, 17 of his best years gone, wasted away. Yet now there are tears, tears not of pain but tears of joy. As he says to his brothers, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves. Why? Because God's hand, because of God's hand, none of the pain, none of the rejection was wasted. Joseph explains that because of God's hand, they and their family are saved from salvation. And this is wonderful news. In verse 14 and 15, Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced Joseph, weeping. And Joseph, he kissed all his brothers and wept over them, and afterwards his brothers talked with him. And we have this wonderful image of reconciliation and forgiveness, real forgiveness, real forgiveness that's complete, life-giving, long-lasting, forgiveness that's from the heart. We can't help but admire the beauty of this forgiveness, the richness and the depth of Joseph's compassion. And then, well, for a number of us, we can't help but think of our great betrayal. Maybe we were ripped off by a business partner or abandoned by a spouse or stabbed in the back by some gossip or some other pain that we carry. And this hurt is always just below the surface. And so we think, forgiveness, it's a great idea, but it's just too hard. If people knew the hurt I carry, none would begrudge me. If people knew the pain I've endured, they'd all agree. Not even God expects me to forgive this person. And what do you think God would say to that? He would say something like this, Douglas, you must forgive. Not only this, Douglas, if you don't forgive, I cannot forgive you. And I would cry, that's impossible, Lord. I can't forgive. I don't even want to forgive. And then Jesus joins the conversation. Douglas, don't you remember that prayer? The prayer that Kath just led you in. You know the line, forgive us our sins and we, as we... As we forgive others who sin against us. And don't you hate it when God and Jesus gang up on you? <laughs> You've just got nowhere to go. 
And so this brings us to the question of how we forgive. We're seeing what forgiveness looks like. And I encourage you to go to Genesis 45 and just spend some time looking at it. It's such a beautiful picture described of reconciliation. And we've seen what it looks like, and, and it's wonderful. But how do we forgive? How do we forgive when it's tough? Is forgiveness instant? You know, as Christians, should we forgive and forget and move on? What about those who genuinely have tried and say, hand on heart, God, I have tried to forgive that person, but I can't. What's God's word for you today? Well, it comes in the parable found in Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. And we pick up the story when Peter, who is brash and confident and wants to show Jesus and the others how good he is at forgiveness, comes and asks this question, Matthew 18, verse 21. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? And I bet the other disciples were impressed. Seven times? Wow, what a hero. Peter, you're a legend. And then what does Jesus reply? Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. Imagine Peter's mouth just drop. He thought he was being clever with the seven times. And if you look at the footnote in the bottom of most Bibles, the Greek's a little bit unclear. And so some interpreters think it's 70 times seven. But we get the picture. It's impossible, Christ. I can't forgive somebody one time. For one thing, let alone 77 times. But in this impossibility, we see a clue to what genuine forgiveness looks like, what Christian forgiveness looks like. Because when Jesus says 77 times, he's saying this, forgive the same sin 77 times. Think about that. That's quite different, isn't it? It's not someone coming up to you and doing 77 things to you. It's the one sin. And if you need to go to the 78th, well, that's when that 70 times 7 kicks in. So let's see what this looks like. Someone says something most unkind behind your back. The untruth is cruel and nasty and it spreads. However, when you find out, you challenge the person over what they said and they quickly apologise. And even though you're gutted, you sense their apology is genuine and you accept the apology. That's one. Now later that night, a friend rings and she says, Look, I've heard all this stuff about you. Is it true? And what do you feel inside? It all starts to come back. And you have to say to yourself, Lord, I forgive. That's two. The next morning over breakfast, you're reading the paper and you happen to pick up the ODT because it's the best paper, so I've been told. You pick up the ODT and you happen to read an article and just randomly it triggers something off and reminds you of that slander. And you get a head of steam over your cornflakes. And then you say, no, I need to forgive that person. It's three. Later in the week you go to church and they're sitting three rows in front of you and you cannot concentrate because you're thinking of those things that person said. And you say to yourself, Lord, this is harder than I thought. But I forgive that person. And that's four. And that's how Christians forgive. The same event up to 77 times 
until the sting is not there anymore. Until you can remember that person or that event and you have a peace. There might be a sense of sadness, but there is no sting. How many times do I have to forgive, Lord? Seven times? Jesus replied, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. You see, instant forgiveness is a myth. Forgiveness is a process. It's a process. It's not instant. It's the same sin 77 times or maybe even 70 times 7 until the sting disappears. And as Christians, we are, are conditioned badly to forgive instantly and in thinking that's what God wants. Now, for sometimes, for smaller things, then that process is very short. So maybe you did forget to bring those groceries home after work. Then one would hope that that is a very short process. But you never know in a family situation, especially if it's cumulative. But you would hope that that's a short process. But there are other things, thankfully not many things in our lives, but there are some things where that process goes on for a long time. And, and I, I can guarantee that every person in this room has had in the past or has now something that they're dealing with and that if, if, you, if you were to scratch behind the surface, you would either say, oh, that makes me cross. It was, only, it was 30 years ago. Or by the grace of God, you might think, well, that was 30 years ago, but I've let it go. And it's my prayer that we'll all be the latter that we'll be able to let it go. Now, this is how Christians are to forgive. It's how Joseph forgave. All those years he was a slave and in prison, and whenever he thought of his brothers, he had a choice. He could harbour bitter thoughts, he could clench his fist and rail at God demanding justice, or he could pray something like this. Lord, I remember when Judah suggested to my brothers to sell me. Help me, though, to forgive him. Lord, I don't want to forgive Reuben. And Simeon, but help me. As much as I am able today, even I am in this prison cell, I forgive them. Help me to forgive them completely. And so in Genesis 45, we don't see Joseph thinking, oh, there's my brothers again. They did some bad things. I'm going to forgive them now. We see the end result of years of, of Joseph choosing to forgive his brothers and then this wonderful release and freedom and reconciliation. But it's such a big ask. I mean, how on earth are we going to be motivated to even consider forgiving like this? I mean, the pain is deep. And let's confess, we sometimes learn to live with our pain and even gain a dark satisfaction of holding on to that bitterness. You know, we kind of... It kind of defines who we are. I am that person who 30 years ago someone did something really, really nasty to. And we kind of get this dark satisfaction and even pleasure from being a victim. So how do we let all that go? Where's our motivation to forgive someone 77 times? Well, that's what we're going to look at now. And to do that, we need to look at the parable of the unmerciful servant. Because Jesus has said... 
Forgive 77 times, Peter. And Peter, just like you and I saying, what? 77 times? That's too hard. And then Jesus tells Peter and the other disciples this parable. The king's coffers are low. He's got roads to build, public works to complete, an army to equip, and a few lavish parties to throw. Time to check the books and to call in some loans. So he opens the ledger and one loan leaps out of the page. What was I thinking, mutters the king and shakes his head. Time to settle this account. So he calls the servant who owes him this money. And he has the treasurer read the books out. And as the servant hears the numbers, he turns pale and his knees buckle and he falls to the ground. And the king looks at him and says sternly, can you pay? And there is no reply, just some whimpering. Turning to his attendant, the king sighs, and they begin discussing selling the servant, his wife and his children into slavery, and selling their house and all their goods to raise some money. Be patient with me, and I'll pay everything back, stammers a voice from the floor. And the king turns and ponders. Now let's pause for a moment and consider the original listeners. They will be chuckling into their beds. This is the most ridiculous and amusing thing they've heard for a long time. For in today's terms, 10,000 talents runs into, and there's various ways of calculating this, but it runs into about $10 million. Now that's a lot of money, isn't it? Most of us, if we were asked to pay back $10 million on the spot, would struggle. In those days, though, it was a ridiculous amount. In relative terms, so we think this servant owes $10 million. In relative terms, the whole Roman Empire's income was only $850,000. The whole Roman Empire. So that's to pay all the civil servants, all the army, all the building projects, which were spectacular, were $850,000. So we're talking, we're talking 12 or 13 times the annual income of the Roman Empire. King Herod was the richest man in Palestine. He didn't have anywhere near that much. So in this story, for a king to make that big loan in the first place was a little bit ludicrous. It was silly. But then for the servant to say, give me more time to pay it back, well, that's, I think, when the listeners would have started bursting out laughing. Given the average income of the day, it's been calculated it would take 125,000 years on a labourer's wage to pay that sort of money back. That's not counting interest for you bean counters. You can do that calculation later. So when the servant pleads for more time, we can imagine the listeners just bursting out laughing. More time? More time? You can't be serious. And then they hear the king's reply, I cancel your debt. And the servant can't believe his ears. The attendants think the king's crazy, the treasurer has a heart attack, and Peter and the other disciples listening are just scratching their head. And then Jesus turns the tail and says, Peter, you are that servant. You other disciples, you are that servant. Douglas and everyone sitting in this room, you are that servant. And that we all owe a ridiculous amount to God. I mean, we like to relativise our sins. We think, well, I've got a bit of a problem in this area. But I know people who are a lot worse. Might even be sitting next to me in church on Sunday. I know people a lot worse. 
And then, of course, we read the paper about ex-murderers and all these other vile people, and we have a little sense of satisfaction. Well, I may be bad, but I'm not that bad. And we relative it. And so we think, well, if I did have to face God, I'll only owe a few hundred talents. You know, I, we, I'm sure we could negotiate something. It might be a week or two wages that I owe God. But with this parable, God is saying, no. There's no way you can pay back this ridiculous sum, ever. That's how much you owe the living God. It's like Jesus is saying, do you want the good news or the bad news first? And we say, well, we'll have the bad news. And Jesus says, the bad news, your debt of sin is so large you can never pay it back except to be thrown in the pits of hell. I say, well, what's the good news? And Jesus says, my heavenly Father will cancel your debt completely, unreservedly, no strings attached when you put your trust in me. And we think, great. And then he says, go and do likewise. And we think, oh. But you see, this parable is all about perspective, isn't it? If God forgives you and I the most horrendous debt, how can we not forgive someone who owes us a relatively small debt? And of course, we get this in the next part of the parable, don't we? We owe God a ridiculous sum of money. He forgives us. How can we not forgive? And so this newly forgiven servant, servant number one, then comes across another servant who happens to owe servant number one some money. Now, the money works out to be about three months' worth of wages. So you think three months' worth of wages, that's quite a reasonable amount of money, isn't it? I mean, it's nothing, it's not just a $20 note or two. That's a reasonable amount. And so this servant says exactly what the first servant said, give me more time. And the first servant says no and throws him into debtor's prison until he's paid it all. Now, of course, the king finds out and he's furious. Verse 32, you wicked servant, he said, I cancelled all your debt because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured. Well, it's a bit grim. Tortured. It's pretty serious. Until he should have paid it all back. And then the last verse in that parable, Jesus explains it. Now, Jesus really explained what his parables were about. Most of the time, Jesus gave a parable and we have to figure it out ourselves. So the few times when Jesus does explain a parable, we need to really pay attention. And this is what Jesus said. This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. You see, we are motivated to forgive only when we understand how much God first loves us and first forgave us. So if we can think the most horrendous thing that someone has done against us, and for some people that will be pretty grim, For some people it may not be, but if we think of that, we have to think, well, my debt to God is so much greater that surely I can forgive this person. And it makes sense in our head, but Jesus said, until you can forgive people from the heart. And how do we forgive people from the heart? One step at a time till we get to 77. And if that sting is still there, we go to 70 times 7. And that's how we forgive people from the heart. 
Now, someone may cut us off from the motorway and we get feel like road rage. But we think, no, God's forgiven me. And hopefully you'll be able to forgive them pretty quick. Or maybe we've suffered evil as a child at the hands of someone who should have protected us. Goodness me. But God has forgiven us so much more that at least we can say, God, I don't want to forgive that person, but change my heart. And that's enough. That's enough to start with. God can work with that. You might say, Lord, I can't forgive that person, and that's fine. But change my heart. And he will start that one step at a time. Now, there's much more to be said about forgiveness. And I've only talked about one myth. And the myth that a lot of Christians carry around with them is that they have to forgive instantly. It's not biblical, it's not what Jesus taught, and it's not healthy. Forgiveness is a process, and we've looked at that today. If we had time, there are two other myths that I'd I'd like to cover. Each is worth a sermon. And I'm giving them now too, because if you take that process forgiveness and nothing else, you can get yourself in a bit of trouble. So the next myth is forgetting. Forgiving and forgetting. So you forgive someone and that's it, you move on. Now that is a myth. Because you forgive someone something quite seriously, it is appropriate that at times there are consequences for that person and that you set boundaries to protect yourself. Okay? So the myth is, I forgive you for having an affair in our marriage and I will forget it and we will just carry on. No, there are consequences and boundaries. So that's the second myth. And the third myth is reconciliation at all costs. Okay? A lot of Christians believe forgiveness process isn't complete until we're reconciled. That's a myth. There are some times when you can forgive someone from your heart and be genuine, yet they have their own free will and they may not want to be reconciled. And uh, we haven't got time to go into the details, but Paul puts this so well in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. He says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. He's not saying live at peace with everyone and you compromise and you just do everything and become a doormat. He's saying, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so there are some times when reconciliation doesn't work. But that's okay, because you can still forgive them from your heart. So today, what do we need to know? For Christians, forgiveness is not optional. I want to make that crystal clear. We say it in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our sins as we forgive others who sin against us. But it's a process where every time we recall the event, we choose to forgive until the sting is gone. And sometimes that may take two or three times, sometimes it may take weeks, months, even years, but we choose to forgive. We might have thought about that for for two or three years and then something triggers and we find ourselves getting cross and we say, no, Lord, I forgive. And we forgive until that trigger or that memory has no sting. And our Heavenly Father understands how hard it can be. He does not leave us alone. And he says to each one of us today from Isaiah 41, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. 
I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. For I am the Lord your God who takes hold of your right hand. If you're struggling with forgiveness, if someone has done something so cruel, so bitter, so soul-destroying, and you still have that sting in your life, your Heavenly Father says to you this morning, I hold out my right hand, take hold of it, and I will lead you through this process. Do not fear, I will help you. Because we cannot do this on our own. And oh, the joy of letting go, the bitterness and the hurt. And allowing God to heal. When the triggers that used to set off bitter thoughts and hatreds, when they fall away and are replaced with a genuine peace. A peace that comes that knowing Christ carries all our hurts and all our pains. And on the cross, when he bore them for us, he died and rose again to set us free. Lord, Lord, may we know this peace and your healing to be real in our life. Let's pray.